right, you can have a seat. You can keep your Bible open to Matthew chapter 5. So, typically, um, I try to come up here and start off with a story of some sort or um, illustration or something just to get your attention and to really just convince you that this matters, right? Like what we're talking about, convince you why you should listen to me for the next 40 minutes. Um, but you just heard the passage read, right? Like this is, I don't think I have to do that this morning. I think we know um, why this matters. I think we see why this is relevant to us. And let me just say, um, to all of us in this room, I, I mean, this could be a message, and I'm not talking about for me necessarily. I'm talking about the message that Jesus gives us here. This could be the message that saves your life, <laughs> saves your eternity, because this is just a, um, an issue. This problem of, of lust is such an issue that is so prevalent in our culture. Um, and there's a lot of people who want to follow the Sermon on the Mount. Right? They want to follow Jesus, but it is this that is keeping them from doing it. So there's a lot of relevance here in this passage. And so let's not waste time. Let's jump right into it. Let's start here in verse 27. So we'll just take it section by section here and, and, and go through God's word. So um, let's just read verses 27 and 28. It says this, You have heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So I have to address this. You'll, you'll notice as we walk through the Sermon on the Mount that Jesus is going to use the same phrase six times. He used it last week. He's using it again here. This phrase, you have heard that it was said, but I say to you. And we can misunderstand that. I know Pastor Sam talked about this last week, but we can misunderstand that and think that Jesus came to abolish the law, to abolish the Old Testament. But that's not what he's saying at all. If he was saying that, he would say something totally different. He would say, you, you would, he would say it is written, but I say to you. But that's not what he says. He says, you have heard that it was said, and I say to you. So he's not critiquing the Old Testament. He's not critiquing the Bible. Who's he critiquing? The teachers, right? the ones who are teaching the Bible, the, the teachers, the interpreters of his day. And so what Jesus is saying here is, though they followed the law, and they were very meticulous about following the law, we know this, right? They, they went to great lengths to follow the law. They followed the letter of the law, but they totally missed it. They actually missed what Jesus says is the spirit of the law. So here's an example. I used this last week just preaching in the auditorium, but I think it's pretty helpful. Let's say that you're on a walk. Okay? You're on a walk, and as you're walking, you have a place you need to go, but you come to this big grassy field. And this field has a big sign right in front of it, and the sign says in big bold letters, please do not walk on the grass. And so you have a brilliant idea, and you begin skipping across the grass, right? or running at a dead sprint across the grass. And you get to the other side and you say, well, I didn't break a rule. <laughs> it said, do not walk on the grass. And I didn't walk on the grass. I, I, I skipped on the grass. You see the problem there? Technically, you followed the letter of the law. But what, what happened? You missed the spirit of it. <laughs> the whole spirit of the rule, do not walk on the grass, is to not harm the grass. You totally missed it. 
And Jesus is saying that's what the interpreters of the law were doing. They, they got the letter of the law. They were meticulously trying to keep the letter of the law, but they were totally missing the spirit of it. And so the call in the law to not commit adultery is not just about the act of adultery. The spirit of the law, just like the spirit of the law is not to harm the grass, the spirit of the law is not to harm another person. It's to love others. And adultery and lust both harm other people. They are actually antithetical to love. Now, that may be obvious, right? I'm sure it is to many of us. When we talk about adultery, the harm that that causes, it it harms the the spouse who's involved, it tears apart families, it hurts communities. Clearly, it's never a victimless sin. It, it, It splatters and affects people all around it. It hurts a lot of people. And we know that. And I'm sure that many of us come in here with with families that have been broken apart by this. This is part of our story, I'm sure. A lot of people in here of just the the destruction that adultery causes. I don't think I have to convince you of that. But I want you to see that that lust is destructive as well. And that's what Jesus is actually making the point of today. Because we can often think lust is not actually that destructive, but, but it really is. And that's what Jesus wants us to see. So let me start here. When Jesus says lust, when he uses this word lusting, what, what's he talking about? What, what, what does he mean? Because I think it's important to be clear here because at times there have been churches and Christians that have been less than clear on this. They have been less than clear about God's view on sexual desire. And so I was a, a student pastor for 10 years and I had a lot of teenagers in my office greatly confused because they had begun to believe that God was against all sexual desire, and then they hit puberty. (laughs) And so there was this crushing guilt that they were just feeling day in and day out. And a lot of times I had to convince them, like, like, no, God is not against sexual desire. Jesus, here in his teaching, is not against sexual desire. God is actually in on it. (laughs) He, He created sex. He created in us the desire to have sex. So when you see an attractive person and you notice that they're attractive, that's not what Jesus is talking about here. That's that's, that's not what he's addressing here. Actually, he's not even addressing sexual temptation here because we're actually limited in how much we can control that. We we, We have very little control over when temptation comes. Martin Luther put it this way. He said, it is impossible to keep the devil from shooting evil thoughts and lust into your heart. But see to it that you do not let such arrows stick there and take root, but tear them out and throw them away. I cannot keep a bird from flying over my head, but I can certainly keep it from nesting in my hair or from biting my nose off. You see here that the first look is not actually not the issue here. It's the second look and what follows. It's what follows that is destructive. It's destructive to both the person you're lusting after and to your own soul. Here's what we need to see. Lust is always a power play. You know that? Lust is always a power play. When you are lusting after another person, you are seeking power over them. You are putting yourself above them. Remember last week, this is why it's so closely connected with anger here, right, as Jesus is teaching. 
Remember last week with anger. The problem with anger is that anger morphs. It doesn't stay anger. Anger morphs into contempt. And you know what the difference is? Anger is something that I feel, feel towards someone who's on the same level as me. Contempt is what I feel towards someone who I feel like I'm better than. So the more you chew on that anger, you start to believe that you would never do what that other person did to you. And you begin to feel superior to them, and you begin to look down upon them, and you have power over them. Lust works the same way. It's a power play. It puts you in the power position. You're taking an image bearer of God, someone who God loves, someone who is your equal, and you're turning them into an object for your pleasure. They may not even know it, but do you see how destructive this is? They may be completely oblivious to it, but you are turning them into something less than human in your mind. You turn them into something less than human. And so it's harming them. It's evil towards them, right? You're hurting them. But not only that, it is a cancer to your own heart. Lust destroys you. Jesus calls it, I, this, is, this, is, this is so helpful, he calls it adultery of the heart. So when we're talking about adultery, adultery doesn't just happen. Adultery is the result of a process that started much earlier with adultery of the heart. When we give in to lusting after the person we see in the coffee shop or on the video we seek out online, we are actually rewiring our brains. We are changing the way that we view other people. And when we lust after them, we're actually losing our ability to love them. And that's scary, isn't it? That's scary. Because as disciples of Jesus, that's what we do, <laughs> is we love people. And, and, and Jesus made it clear. He said, you know, they, they, he was asked, what is the greatest commandment? Well, here's what he says, Matthew 22, 37 through 39. He says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. But he doesn't stop there. He says, and a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. The more you give in to lust, you are forming yourself into a person who cannot love anyone because you are training yourself to see them as only objects. Do you see this? You are forming yourself into someone who cannot love, who cannot love. And that's dangerous. That's dangerous. Lust is the complete opposite of love. Let me just show you this. So 1 Corinthians 13, right? It's the one that we read at all the weddings. It's beautiful. This is Paul's definition of love. And let me just show you verse 4. Okay, that's all we're going to look at, verse 4. This is how Paul would define what love is. And let's compare it here to lust. So it says this. Love is patient. Love is, is faithful. Love makes a commitment to someone and sticks with them. Especially in a marriage ceremony. We, we are making a covenant with someone that when I see the ugly parts of you, I am staying. But think about lust. Lust is all about gratification in the here and now. Lust is all about what can you give to me. Lust turns everything into a consumer relationship. And lust, whenever anything gets hard, or when the ugly parts come out, it moves on to the next person. 
because there's no commitment there. Continuing, love is kind. It treats people well. Lust, on the other hand, doesn't care who it hurts. It makes you callous. You can't consider the consequences. Lust causes you to be willing to destroy your own soul and hurt others to get what you want. It makes you stupid. You can't see the consequences. Look at this. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant. We could summarize it this way. Love is not self-serving. Love is always asking, how can I serve others? How can I do the best by them? But lust, on the other hand, is narcissistic. It's completely about me. What can I get from you? How can you make me feel better about myself? And listen to this. Here's, here's the really dangerous thing. You know, the, the, the title of the, the sermon series is Life in the Kingdom. The lusting person doesn't want life in the kingdom. You know why? <laughs> because the lusting person is all about me. And life in the kingdom is all about Jesus. And so the lusting person doesn't want to be in the kingdom because it's not about him or her. You see the, the danger here. And it's so dangerous because love and lust can look so similar on the surface. But love builds others up while lust destroys them. To put it bluntly, love is the way of Jesus. Lust is the way of Satan. And so it's, it's, it's helpful to stop here okay, and just address maybe an elephant in the room. Okay? If this is true, I want you to think about how destructive pornography is. Okay? I mean, obviously, so pervasive in our culture. Think about how destructive that is and what it forms us into. I mean, there's, I could, that's, that's a whole sermon series. But just think about this one thing that pornography does. Pornography presents to you image after image after image of men and women who are image bearers of God. Okay? They're not objects. They're men and women who God knit together in their mother's womb. Men and women who God loves. Men and women who have families and who have stories they're, they're human beings, but porn presents them as objects for your pleasure. It takes human beings that God loves and adores and turns them into objects. It completely removes their dignity. One theologian said it this way. He said, there's no dignity when the human dimension is eliminated from the person. In short, the problem with pornography is not that it shows too much of the person, but that it shows far too little. You begin to believe that you're not looking at an actual person and you lose the ability to see anyone as an actual person. All it is is playing into your own narcissism. And so slowly but surely those images turn you from a lover to a luster. It makes everything about you. It affects the way you love anyone even the, God, the people God has put closest to you. You see how dangerous that is. And then we have to, we can't stop there. It affects our relationships with people, but it also drives a wedge in our relationship with God. Lust does, of all kinds. It drives a wedge in between us and God. One of the things I've been struck by studying the Sermon on the Mount 
is how much Jesus equates our relationship with others to our relationship with him. Have you noticed that? Isn't that amazing? How he, even last week with anger, he tells us, stop worshiping me. Like, just drop your stuff that you're going to bring to the altar and go make it right with your brother. Like, he's all, he wants us to be right with those around us, and it affects our relationship with him. I was noticing, I've been, I've been stuck on this, this verse in 1 Peter, 1 Peter 3, 7. Peter goes as far as to say that if you are mistreating your spouse, it actually hinders your prayers. Do you know that? If you are not good with your spouse, God goes as far as to say it hinders your prayers. The point is, it is impossible to have intimacy with God while you are hurting the people he has called you to love. You see the problem. Like, do you see the problem with lust? Do you see how dangerous this is? Do you see that it will destroy you? And some of you are actively being destroyed. Do you see this? What's the solution? Okay, I love this about Jesus. He doesn't leave us without a solution. Right? So let's look at it. Verses 29 and 30. He says this. If your right eye causes you to sin... Tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body go into hell. So what's the solution? Jesus says, gouge out your eye and cut off your hand. And here's the thing. I mean, he, he's not speaking literally, right? Like, if you're not a Christian, you may be wondering, well, why do all these people have eyes and hands, right? He's not speaking literally, but, but that does not mean that he's not serious, okay? He's not being literal, but he is being serious. He's making a point here. Get serious. What's the solution? Get serious about your pursuit of holiness, Jesus understands something that I have seen over and over again in pastoral ministry. Okay? People who say with their lips that they want to have victory over this sin, but they don't mean it because they're not willing to get serious. They're not willing to get serious about it. They say the right things, but they're not willing to take any steps to actually get victory over this sin. I remember seeing this video um, of this woman doing a photo shoot with this lion. And our preaching team, as I shared this with them, told me to make sure that I say she had all her clothes on. Okay, so I'm not, I'm not a hypocrite here. Okay, so it was a totally appropriate video. But she is doing this photo shoot with this lion. And she is just kind of, you know, playing around, you know, like, you know, dancing in front of the camera, just really just kind of making this show out of it as this big, humongous lion sits there and gets pictures taken of it. And the lion, you can, you can find the video on YouTube, okay? Uh, not right now, but later. Um, but this lion is staring at her, like this whole time. And I feel like the lion's just thinking, are you serious? Like, like are, you, are you really doing this right now? And a couple minutes into this, as they're taking pictures, the least surprising thing in the world happens. The lion, seeing this meat, right? Like seeing this thing that it can devour, jumps up and tackles this 90-pound woman to the ground, okay? And people rush in. They take, you know, they take the lion off. They get off. Thankfully, she only had four broken ribs. 
But the funniest part of the whole video is they interview the lion's trainer, and this is the first thing he said. I just did not expect this. I can't believe this. <laughs> Never in my wildest dreams would I think that this would happen. Really. Right? Like, like a lion was literally created by God to devour things. Right? Like, that's, like, that's what it does. That's what it does. And you ha- you're sitting there dancing around it and petting it and taking pictures with it. I tell you that because that is how a lot of Christians deal with this issue. They don't take it seriously. They say, it's trained, right? I got it trained. I know how to function with with it. It's fine. I can live with it. I'm in control. No, you're not. No, you're not. The lion will destroy you. That is Jesus' point. Remember, he says that early on in the Bible. Sin is crouching at your door, and it wants to devour you. Take it. Seriously, that's Jesus' point here. Get serious. Be willing to take drastic steps to get this poison out of your life. I had a friend, just one example. I had a friend in, in Austin um, who was like a big tech guy. Like he literally like ran our tech team at our church in Austin. Huge tech guy. And then I noticed that he had a flip phone. Right? Like, like the, the techiest guy I know, a genius when it comes to tech, is carrying around a flip phone. And I asked him, I was like, hey, man, why why do you have a flip phone? And he said, because I couldn't stop watching porn on my iPhone and I had to get serious. Amen. Like, amen. amen. And if you hear that and you say, well, that's extreme, then you're not willing to cut off your hand and take out your eye, right? Like, I know in, in the 21st century, that feels like cutting off your hand. But if you're not willing to do something like that, then you're not serious. You see this, right? I mean, I had, I had another mentor, and I thought this was crazy. You're going to think this is weird. I thought it was as weird as you do. But he literally, he was a pastor, he literally, he sat down, and he made a list of all the negative consequences that would happen if he had an affair. And he put it in his wallet and carried it around at all times so that if he ever got into a situation, he could pull that out and look at it. And he told me that, and I was like, oh, cool. And I was thinking, that's so weird. But get weird, right? Like, do, if that helps you, right? Like, if, that, if that's what you need to do to fight, to remind you of all the consequences that would come, do it, right? That's, Jesus, get, that's what Jesus is saying here. Get serious. He's trying to show us that the solution here is not an Advil and a Band-Aid. It is amputation. And I cannot tell you what that looks like specifically, okay? I can't tell you what you can watch and what you can't watch, I can't tell you that you need to get rid of your phone or you don't need to get rid of your phone. I don't need to tell you that you need to get rid of your Wi-Fi or don't. I I can't tell you that specifically, but here's what I'll guess. I bet your conscience is telling you some stuff right now that you could do, isn't it? (laughs) I bet there's some stuff coming to mind, some steps that you could take. Here's the question. Are you going to listen? Are you going to listen? Are you going to take the drastic steps necessary? We have to play defense. That's what Jesus is saying. We have to play defense against this. Let me point out also, though, we can also play offense. Okay? We can actually get out ahead of this. We can play offense. We can do things to train ourselves to be able to fight this. Let me give you a couple practices. Okay? Number one, you may not be expecting this one. We don't talk about this enough, in my opinion. But fasting. Fasting. Okay? You ever fast? That's a practice handed down by Jesus. 
okay, handed down by the, throughout church history. Fasting is a great practice to help you in this fight. Think about it, okay? So fasting, so giving up food for a period of time. Here's the thing. We, we live in this culture where we are told if you want something, take it, right? If you want something, take it. If you're hungry, well, there's a Chick-fil-A and there's a McDonald's and there, right? Like you just drive down the road. There's plenty of options for you. Drive through and get it. We, are, we never say no to something we want. And so we get really bad at saying no to anything that we want. That's what fasting trains you to do. Fasting trains your body, this regular practice of fasting, of giving up food, trains your body, trains you to be able to say, no, I don't need that, right? I don't need that. You see how this would help in this fight just to be able to train yourself to do that. So fasting's one. Here's an even more important practice, community community. I, okay, look, you, you cannot win this fight if you are not in community. You stand no chance, okay? We have to fight this together. This battle cannot be fought alone. We cannot keep the world from doing what the world does, okay? We live in a hyper-sexualized world where lust is the norm and love is not, in most of the movies we watch, when someone says, I love you, they actually mean, I lust you. Because <laughs> what they're saying is, I want to have sex with, sex with you, and I want what you can give me, right? We don't see much actual love. But here's the problem. Many of our churches look no different from the world. In this area, we are, I'm speaking generally about the church in America, we are failing to be salt and light. But that's our call, to be different, we should look different in how we address this. We should look different from the world. And so what I'm saying is, let's help each other be different. And let me just tell you, that takes radical honesty. Not with everyone, okay? Like, I'm not saying every person you meet, you have to say, hey, I've, you know, I'm Jake and I lusted yesterday. I'm not, I'm not saying that. But do you have a community around you who you are willing to be open with? who you are willing to tell the truth to, who, who know what you're fighting, who know what's going on in your life. You are not in community if you are surrounded by people, but you are faking it. You understand that? That's not community. That's just being surrounded by people. And so as a community, we bear each other's burdens, and we confess to each other when we're struggling. And I'll just tell you, Confession makes sin lose a lot of its power. It really does. When you can get it out into the light, it's amazing how it loses its power when you just have people that you can open up to and be real with and be honest with. So we need each other. Okay? We need this, this group and, and that group and this church. We need each other. We have to hold each other accountable in this fight. We are all in this fight together. And let me point this out too. This is amazing, okay? It's not just us. You know what? Jesus gets it. You know this? Think about this. Jesus understands the fight. That fight against lust, Jesus has experienced it. Do you know this? Okay? That's what Hebrews 2.18 says. It says, for because he himself, being Jesus, has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Isn't that crazy to think about? Jesus has fought sexual temptation. Jesus has fought the temptation to lust. I don't know what that looked like specifically, but Jesus was surrounded by women. 
right? He was surrounded by prostitutes. He had women take out perfume and wash his feet with their hair. I don't know when he was tempted, but he was. Isn't that amazing? Jesus was tempted, and he won. He won. He felt the full weight of temptation, and he was victorious over it. One more thing here. Our goal here is not just sin management, okay? That's not it. We're, just, we're not just trying to, to, to get, you know, put, make, you know, make our lives tidy and manage our sin. That's not what we're about here. That's not actually our goal. Our goal is something much bigger and much more positive. Our goal is to be pure in heart. Remember that in the Beatitudes? That's the goal. That's the vision, to be pure in heart. Our goal is not just to avoid sin. It is to be like Jesus, to know him, to love him, to love others well, and to live a life of true flourishing. Remember that in the Beatitudes? That's how Jesus started off the Sermon on the Mount. He says, I'm going to give you a life of true flourishing. Lust says, this is flourishing. It's not. It's death, right? Show me one person committing adultery who's truly happy. Show me one porn addict who's truly happy, okay? They're not there because that's not the way of flourishing, Okay? That's our goal, right? Like Jesus is showing us. Jesus knows. Remember, we talked about this like a month ago. Jesus knows what the good life is. And our world says it's lust. Jesus says it's love. Jesus is showing us what it means to live the good life. And lusting isn't flourishing. It's hell. It's hell. It is hell on earth. So it's not just that we want to avoid sin. It's that we want Jesus, and we want to flourish as his disciples. You see this? Okay. Are you with me so far? Okay. Do you see this? Are you with me so far? Okay. Now, it's been heavy, right? It's been heavy. And I think Jesus is making it heavy on purpose. It is heavy. We all feel the effects of this. I need to give you some good news, okay? I need to give you some good news because I don't know what's going through your mind as you're sitting here. I mean, maybe Satan is bringing all these images into your head just to remind you that you're a failure. Maybe you're sitting here with regrets. Okay. Let me give you some good news. Okay. And the good news is Jesus. <laughs> the good news is Jesus. Think about his life. Okay. I want you to think about this story. Do you remember John chapter 4, the woman at the well? You know this story, right? The Samaritan woman at the well. Jesus sits down and she's talk- or sorry, he's talking to this woman And what we know about her is that she is a sexual outcast. She's actually sitting there at this well in the middle of the day because she would have had to go alone because all the other women would have gone early in the day, and she's a total outcast from them. They've kicked kicked her out of their community. So she's alone, and this Jewish man comes up and starts talking to her. And what does he know about her? You remember this? She had five husbands and now she's living with a man who isn't her husband. Think about what we know about this woman. She has blown it, right? Like when we talk about sexuality, she has blown it. We, I'm sure that she has been hurt by the lust of others, right? Lust, the, the sin of others has hurt her, and I'm sure that she has hurt people herself. So what does Jesus do? Maybe we would expect him to berate her, Tell her how sinful she is. Tell her how horrible she is. Well, he doesn't tell her she's okay. Okay, so don't hear. He does not say that. 
Okay? He basically looks at her. He knows what she's going through. And he basically asks this, how's that working out for you? Are you flourishing? Like, are you flourishing? No, you're not. He says, you are trying to satisfy a thirst and you've not been able to do it. You're thirsty and you're looking for the thing that's going to satisfy you and you've come up empty. You come up empty. But what's he do? He points her to himself, right? He points her to himself and he says, I satisfy. I got what, you lo- what you're looking for. You want the good life? I'm it. Okay. It's in me. It's in me. You see that? And then over and over again, we see Jesus hanging out with sexual outcasts, and they are drawn to him like a moth to a flame because he brings them the hope. He brings them the answer that they're looking for. You see that? You see that? So you may be sitting here just racked with guilt. Let me just tell you, Jesus makes it clear. There is hope. There is hope, right? It's not a hopeless situation. The woman at the well was not too broken for Jesus. No one is. No one is. We sang earlier that one day we will be singing with all the saints, right? Remember we sang that in Hymn of Heaven. We'll be there with generations. There's going to be a lot of sexual outcasts in that group. People who have blown it. But they came to see their need for Jesus. And they ran to him. Let me close with one last illustration. I, just, I think this is so beautiful. I heard about this the other day, this, this beautiful illustration. There's this type of, of Japanese art called kintsugi. Okay, kintsugi. And so we'll throw a picture up there. So this is kintsugi. We have a few different pictures here. And so in the West, when a vase or something like that breaks, what do we do? We throw it out. Because right? it's useless to us. Okay? It doesn't matter. It could be, you know great, great, great grandma's vase, and it breaks, and we just say, well, take it to the trash dump. But there's this amazing practice in Japan where they actually take broken vases, and they fix them. But they don't just fix them. They actually put precious metal in the cracks, like gold in this instance. And they do this crazy thing where they take the broken pot, and they fill fill the cracks with gold, and somehow the pot that is broken is now more valuable than it ever was before it was broken. Isn't that amazing? Somehow this broken thing, they take it, and all of a sudden it has much more value than it ever did. That's what Jesus does. I don't don't get it, but that's what he does. He takes things that are broken, and he mends them, and somehow makes them better than they ever were before. Isn't that amazing? And so what a Christian is, is a walking kintsugi bowl, right? It's someone who has been broken, but has been mended together by Jesus because he came and lived the perfect life we couldn't live. He died the death that we deserve. And if we're in him, he mends us back together. Isn't that amazing? He makes us more beautiful than we can ever imagine. But we still have to fight right? Like he then calls us to fight. When we're in him, we fight this temptation. But we're, we're in him. That, that's you, okay? doesn't matter what you've done. doesn't matter what regrets you have. It doesn't matter what mistakes you've made. That's what Jesus offers. You see this? Isn't that beautiful? Isn't that beautiful? Let me pray. Dear Lord, we thank you
that you are that kind of God. I think my mind goes to the story of, of uh, Hosea and Gomer. Gomer ran away from her husband Hosea to, to go and pursue earthly pleasure, to go pursue sex with other, other men. And you told Hosea to go get her back. And that's what you did for us. We ran away to pursue earthly pleasure. But you came and lived the perfect life we couldn't live. You died the death that we deserved. And you came to get us back. Lord, open eyes to that. Open eyes to that. Because I know that there are some of us who we don't want to be fixed. We're too caught up in our lust. We're too caught up in living for ourselves. Please change our hearts. As David prayed in Psalm 51, create a pure heart in me. Create a pure heart in us when we turn away from you. We love you. We love you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Well, if you go ahead and get out your communion cup. I'll remind you while you're getting that out that communion is something that we do as a community of, of believers. And so I just want to ask, if you're not a, a believer, um, if you're not a follower of Jesus, we just ask that you sit and observe and pray, maybe. And, and we'd love, we're so happy you're here, and we'd love for you to be able to do this with us. But we're going to do this as a, as a church family of Christians. And so, if you will, take your, take your bread. The Bible tells us that the night of his betrayal, when he would soon be heading to the cross, Jesus was with his disciples having a meal. And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to stay seated and just give some time for reflection here. Give some time for confession here. Give some time just for you to spend time with the Lord and, and remember what Jesus has done for you. And the band is going to sing a song all over us that we sing pretty often called Nothing Else. Right? Nothing Else. Singing this line, Jesus, all I want is you. Nothing else. Nothing else will do. That's the key here. How do you defeat lust? It's love for Jesus. Saying, I don't need anything else but you. I just ask you, just, just spend this time praying that Jesus will make this true of you as the band sings it over.